0: Welcome to the show. Uh, you're on Subversity Show and um, the p- podcast, uh, and we're talking with A.C. Thompson, who is the author of a, a piece on the death squads, basically, in Little Saigon uh, a few decades ago. Um, maybe you could give some background on yourself first.
1: You know, I've been an investigative reporter since about 1998, and I spent a long time working in print, working at newspapers and magazines. And then since about 2010, I've been working in documentaries, making documentaries with PBS Frontline. And what I focus on are sort of untold human rights stories, stories where there's been an injustice and needless suffering on the part of a human being and
0: the desire to expose that. All right, yeah. And before that, you wrote for print media. Right, uh, what what were some of those publications? So I, I wrote for
1: the the San Francisco Examiner. I wrote for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, SF Weekly, oh, uh, magazines, including Esquire. I wrote for a, a lot of different publications.
0: So d- uh, did you expect the kind of the backlash to your piece? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I did because
1: I understand that, that um, for one, the, the Viet Thanh group was planning to stir up a backlash from the from the jump and I I knew that and and they've been very effective at doing that um and I'm not surprised that they did that as well I know from spending a lot of time with people in the community that there's a, a troubled history with um mass media and I've met people who feel that in part the Vietnam War was lost because of American media oh. and people who feel that they lost their country because right. of, of American mass media and people that feel like particularly in the 80s, there was a lot of um, really sensationalistic portrayals of the Vietnamese American populace in mass media. And so there's a long, I think, a long memory with a lot of people of issues uh, with the media as well. You know, part of it, I think, is that Um, Vietnamese language media, uh, are, there's all kinds of controversies that are constantly circulating in Vietnamese language media. So people are also prepared to respond to those. Um, you know, so, so no, the the backlash doesn't, doesn't surprise
0: me. Um, Um, I'm
1: saddened by it because I think that, uh, people have fixated on certain elements of the documentary and are not talking about the key important parts of the story, which is the, the loss of lives of five Vietnamese-American journalists, the fact that the, their murderers have never been captured, and the fact that there were dozens of other terrorist crimes that happened
0: for which nobody's been, been arrested. Do, do you th- uh, On the particular points that they brought up, uh, one of them was that they claimed that they didn't say what you said they said. Uh, is that true or what? Right. So th- this
1: is Mr. Wen Suan Nia. Uh, and this is actually something that, that we've dealt with an, a, a lot, right? He- here's what happened is, is Mr. Wen Suan Nia, we did an interview with him on camera. And in that interview, he said to us, it's quote unquote quite possible that the Matran of the front was responsible for killing journalist Dam Fong. He said that there was uh, a militant faction within the group that wanted to bring armed struggle to the U.S. and to its enemies in the U.S. Um, and that this caused a big rift within the group. And And so we thought that was pretty interesting and pretty telling. The second that we turned off the camera and took off, we turned off the camera, it was like a, a Robert Durst scenario. I mean, we were just amazed by it because he said, You know, very casually. Well, there was this moment where I was sitting around with a bunch of front people at a meeting of front members and they started discussing plans to kill the editor of the, the Viet newspaper. And I said, yeah. And I said, I said, um, no, you know, don't kill him. I, I think he's a good guy and please don't do that. And the ironic thing is now I write for that newspaper and I was there when this conversation happened. Rick Rowley, our, our um, producer and director, my co-producer was there and um we both we didn't just um hear it. We asked him questions about
0: about this conversation he'd been a part of about did, this meeting. Did he name Yen?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And yeah. Uh, you didn't explicitly. put it you didn't put the name in the uh, in the article. Right.
1: Yeah, that we, we did not and it yeah. was that was really just a a choice because there were a lot of names in the story already and a lot of characters and we wanted to
0: simplify um, but yeah
1: that's exactly who who he said right um, he said doctorate. the
0: biggest uh publication in uh, Vietnamese American publication yeah.
1: right Something like right that, yeah. and um he told us that and then he smiled and and left and um we went to and asked the other cinematographer hey did you hear that And he said, no. And we said, wow, you know, Mr. Nia just said this amazing thing. We then went downstairs and saw uh, our translator, Jimmy Tong Wen. And we said, wow, you know, this we just had this conversation. And then we called our editors and and talked to them about it. And we said, we're just kind of stunned that this happened. And we actually checked to see if if it was possible, we had recorded it and and we didn't because we had just unmiked him. Oh. But all these people that, that, uh, were aware of that conversation it, almost immediately. And, um, we both Rick and I both talked about it, you know, did you hear exactly what I heard? And we, we discussed it pretty thoroughly. So now, I mean, I'm not, I knew that Mr. Neal would say that, what else can he say? Right. right. You know, other than to deny that he said this, you know, he's saying that he was in a meeting where they plan to discuss a very prominent journalist, a very prominent member of the community. And I think the question that it opens up, right, is if he was in a meeting where that was discussed, what other things were discussed in meetings of that group during that time period? Um, And it would seem to lend uh, credibility to our thesis, which we heard from many different people who were members of the group, that there were members of the group of the front, who were targeting journalists and people uh, with
0: whom they disagreed on political grounds? Did Did you ask specifically about uh, uh, Cooperman, the professor at Cal State uh, Fullerton, who was also killed uh, earlier in the early eighties? You know, you know the the
1: story with with Professor Edward Cooperman is one that that's actually one that we've been looking at a bunch, but I have not yet found a lot of information linking um, this group of people to that killing. I mean, what I do know is that there were front members, I believe, that were present in the courtroom when that trial occurred. And there, uh, my understanding is that Tran Minh Kong, who was uh, a key front leader, what helped uh, the defense right. of the defendant in that case. But I haven't been able to find help. More. Get the lawyer, right? May
0: the yeah, lawyer, yeah, yeah, Alan right. May. Yeah, and, um, uh, but I haven't been
1: able to find more evidence linking the the Matt Tran to
0: to that uh incident, that crime. Yeah, I, we can talk off camera more about what I know about that um, because I, I came. Would like to. Yeah, I came to um uh, Orange County in '86, and before that, I had known about the case because I was on a. Um, something called the funding exchange and they were, uh, supporting, um, the, the support committee for the Cooperman case, um, out in New York, I was on Uh the board. And so I heard about the case and then I came to Irvine, uh, in 86. And, uh, there was also a lot of tension at the time. Uh, I got death threats myself for writing about, uh, this type of stuff. And, uh, Got letters, uh, saying I should go for rides with the police. They would teach me some lesson, uh, from a guy who claimed he was an MP. He was an American MP in Saigon before. And he sent me a letter <laughs> with Jane Fonda words on it and just, just basically anti-left stuff. And, uh, so anyway, so there was a lot of scary stuff going on. Uh, and then I was chased from a parking lot when I was trying to take some pictures. Over some protests outside, uh, Yendo had owned this restaurant, uh, and, uh, um, and uh, Tony Lamb, not Yendo, sorry, I get the two ah. confused. Tony Lamb, sorry, Tony Lamb had, uh, who was a city councilman and, mm. uh, in Westminster, right. he, uh, and a mayor actually at one point, he, uh, he had owned a restaurant that they protested because he didn't show up at some rally on the advice of the city attorney. And so they, uh, thought everybody that didn't agree with them was uh, a communist, I guess. And so, wow. Yeah. So wow. it was really a scary time. And it, that was, it that sounds was in the like 90s. It. That was in the 90s, actually. So. You know, and I should say uh, about some of
1: the backlash and criticism, I, I want to make it totally clear. Um, people have said, well, you know, you're portraying the Vietnamese American community in this terrible light our story is not a portrayal of the Vietnamese American community. It's a very discreet, very targeted investigation into a series of crimes. And it's looking for the answers of who is behind those crimes. And it's not meant to be a blank, a, a mass portrayal of all dimensions and all aspects of the community. It's a very um, discreet look at particular incidents and the people who may have been connected to them. And, Anyone who feels that, you know, you've, you've made the community look bad, you make us all look terrible, like we're all crazy extremists, That's I don't think that, and that's not the point at all. But the point is, if you're going to look at extremist violence, you have to talk to extremists, and those will be the people who show up on camera and show up in the stories. Um, and those are sort of the people that you have to engage with to understand who might be behind the, the, the crimes. Um, you know, people have said, uh, you know we don't like the the idea of calling this terror in little Saigon um, it gives Sa- little saigons around the country a bad name and and I understand that and i I apologize if people are upset about that, but it's really uh and I think that the, the title is not it's not my first choice honestly but it, what it's saying is hey, these were people in these communities who were terrorized who were victims of terrorism, and we should be we should recognize that we should um be aware of that. And we should make sure that this doesn't happen to them again and that the people who did these crimes are held accountable. And that's sort of that's that was our goal here. And so for people who have, uh, you know, I, I apologize to people who ha- have misunderstood that or have thought
0: that we are making sort of these blanket statements that we really aren't. Yeah, I think one of the chrism is that they, they say, oh, what happened in Paris last Friday is terrorism. But th- this wasn't terrorism. Uh, how do you respond to that? Um, well, here's here's the, the truth, right? Is that the FBI investigations
1: were predicated as domestic security slash terrorism investigations. And they were pursued as terrorism investigations because this was terrorism, because people were threatened in writing and on the phone. People were killed. And then groups that were ter- clearly terrorist groups were sending out communiques. Saying we killed these people for political reasons, and now we're sending out a communiqué to change the behavior of the community and terrify the community. There were arsons, a, a whole string right. of arsons that you're sure. probably familiar with yeah. that yeah. were Even politically Newspaper was burned, right? In a, right? In a truck and, um, yeah. and this, this is all criminal activity that is designed to generate a political outcome. It is the definition of terrorism. And it might be at a lower level. It's certainly at a lower level than going and shooting a 100 people in a nightclub in Paris or flying a a plane into a tall building in New York. But it is absolutely terrorism. And to me, the, the failure here is that English language media didn't really understand that and didn't focus on it. And that law enforcement didn't realize that and didn't respond to it as quickly as they should have and as effectively as they should have.
0: Uh, on some of the um, feedback I read in the on the Vietnamese uh, Studies Group list, which is a Vietnam scholars <laughs> group, and uh, some of them said that the reason the FBI got interested was because of the Cooperman case. Is that true? I mean, what what, what date was was this started? Uh, this investigation started. Well, it's really interesting what what you can
1: tell from reading the files and talking to people that worked at the Bureau is that as these crimes popped up around the country, starting in in about 1981, there was acknowledgement at different FBI field offices that things were happening and that they should be aware of some of these crimes. Um, Some agents took them more seriously than others. Um, there was, you know, a little bit of an investigation here, a little bit of an investigation there. In some places there was almost no investigation. But what it what happened is then when you get into the later 80s, years after these crimes have been going on for years, the Los Angeles field office opened a terrorism case, domestic domestic security terrorism case, and they began looking at these cases as possibly being linked together, as being connected. And, you know, to make that claim is pretty is pretty easy because you have a, a group that's sending out, using the same name over and over again, sending out communiques in connection with the crimes. Um, that investigation, from everything I can tell, was not a particularly muscular investigation. There was just a few people on it, and um, they were basically fairly overwhelmed. And so then it doesn't become until 1995 that this really becomes a priority for the Bureau. I don't know that the Cooperman case was really the the triggering factor for it, um, being taken up by the Los Angeles field office. And even the LA field office taking it up, I think really the key moment comes in, in 95. So, you know, about 14,
0: 15 years right. after this all starts. And the group you mentioned that sent out these communiques, uh, I saw some FBI files before and they, they dismissed this group as a, as, um as not a real group, right? The V-Cern that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating thing. And I think part of what happened was that early on, um, when, when, uh, Zeng gets killed in San Francisco in 1981, there was a communique that went out in English. Uh, to the Associated Press, and the group that sent it out called themselves the Anti-Communist Viets Organization. And then a week later, a communique went out in the Vietnamese language, and the group called themselves the Vietnamese Organization to Exterminate Communists and Restore the Nation, which later became known as Vosern in English.
0: Vosern, yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, so law enforcement saw these two different communiques, and they thought, oh, there's two different great groups claiming responsibility for it. Maybe it's not political at all. Maybe, you know, this is all just kind of a weird hoax around this crime. And what I think really may have happened is that um, the two groups are one and the same. But there was a, a not particularly that the translation in the English, when whoever was typing it up in English, wasn't exactly what the group would, would you know, end up deciding it wanted to be called in the Vietnamese language. Um And I think so early on, I think law enforcement felt like, oh, we don't really know if this is a a real terrorist thing. We think it's kind of a a hoax or just bogus, you know. And I think that set a template for how law enforcement responded to the cases for a long time.
0: But was this uh, linked uh, anyway by the FBI to the National United Front for the liberation of Vietnam? Early on, early on, from the
1: early 1980s, the FBI and other law enforcement organizations began looking for a link to the Front and these crimes. There, there was strong suspicions from early on that the Front was responsible
0: for these crimes,
1: um, dating dating way back to
0: the 80s, yes. But did you, in your oral histories with these people, uh, with these Front members, did you ask them about the, the other groups? Did they, did they make up these groups or was there any connection officially? did the other um, i mean this vosan you know did you think that was a did they create this group or who created the group
1: you know i i asked somebody about that and he said i don't know this was somebody who used that name mm. in sending out communiques and this was a former front member mm. and the person said um i think it was a name that was terrifying people and I think people within the front used it, but also other people used it
0: as well. Why, why did the tax case uh, not go anywhere? What happened there? You know,
1: so in the early 90s, five key members of the, the front were charged with tax evasion and with diverting donations that were made to the front. They were charged in federal court. And basically what the U.S. government was saying is, hey, you basically embezzled money that was being given to the group and didn't pay taxes on it. You didn't report that income. What the front said in court is, hey, the CIA and the U.S. Department of Defense let us do what we wanted to do with this money. Um, and we were helping them out in Southeast Asia looking for POWs and MIAs uh, from the Vietnam War. There was a long battle over discovery in the case. And basically, at one point, the judge took a very, very long time to rule on a a discovery issue. And the defendants said, hey, you, this has gone on so long, we never waived our right to a speedy trial. No one asked us to. And this whole thing has taken too long to actually take us to trial. And so the judge had to dismiss the case at that point
0: how about the involvement of the US government uh, official who who vouched for the identity of the leader of the front in his uh pass it was a passport application well
1: yeah so th- this is how that all goes down you know one thing we wanted to know is was the CIA involved with this organization at all was any government US government agency involved and what we kept hearing was no the CIA was not but if there was support being given, it was being given in a very uh, soft way by people at the U.S. Defense Department. So the first sign that we got of this was looking at the immigration file for, for Mr. Wang Komin, who was the guy who led the front. And what you see in there is a letter in 1983 from the D- Department of Defense to the Immigration Service that says, or it's actually a letter the Immigration Service that has written up, and it says, we just got a call from the Department of Defense. They want to speed up the citizenship process for this this gentleman, Mr. Wang Kong Min, as quickly as possible. And then the next pages of the file are all blanked out, and the Immigration Service to this day will not tell us what those documents say who generated those documents? They say another government agency besides the Immigration Service generated them. And they but we won't tell you who. And they say that they're all classified under national security and intelligence guidelines. Um, so that was all very interesting to us. But as we talked to front members and read the memoirs of front members, what they all said was Richard Armitage was the real patron um, within. The U.S. government for the group. He was the one who supported the group more than anyone, and it was all personal. It was all based on his friendship with Mr. Wang Komin that went back to the war. Um, so we had heard from sources that that he helped them set up their their camp in Thailand, and that he had put them in touch with with Thai uh, military officials. And he essentially confirmed this to us. He said, "You know, yes, I did." personally vouch for uh Mr. Wang to my counterparts in the Thai military. I told them he was a great soldier. I also told them that no we the US government was not officially backing his efforts to uh topple the government in Hanoi. But that seems to have been a crucial sort of uh help, crucial crucial form of aid that helped the front set up a base in Thailand so that it couldn't try to invade Vietnam. And at that time, Richard Armitage was one of the, the top officials
0: in the Pentagon during the Reagan administration. Right. And, uh, did they actually, um, uh, attack any, any, anything in, in Vietnam? Did they cross the border into Vietnam? And I understand some were caught, right? Uh, if they were, they crossed. Or did, or is this all just propaganda? Uh, for the home consumption here? You know, as far as I can tell, there
1: were three missions to try to infiltrate and invade Vietnam. And all of these were going, they were called the Eastward Campaigns, and they were all going from the border of Thailand and Laos across Laos. And the, the plan was to go into Vietnam I don't believe that the group ever got inside Vietnam, and I think today they, they acknowledge that they didn't. Um I also believe that they sent, uh, emissaries to Cambodia, but that those emissaries were, were caught in Cambodia at that time. That time, hmm. uh, the People's Army of Vietnam was, was right. essentially running Cambodia, and the forces that caught the front soldiers in Laos, this was the, the Pathet Lao, uh, soldiers, the, the Lao wow. army, as well as the People's Army of Vietnam, um, you know, they they went in there with Lao guides, and we met the those guides, um, the Lao guerrillas who were helping them. They came in with uh, rocket launchers, with uh, American-made uh, assault rifles, with Chinese-made assault rifles, and also, from what we understand, um, bars of gold mm. to use if they had gotten into Vietnam, and typewriters to generate propaganda.
0: But um, with, um, I guess my question is, what? How about the successor group, uh, Viet Tan? Uh, did they? Is that uh, straight out successor group? And did did Min also found that group? Yeah. So so he founded
1: that group. And if you look back at pictures of um, the front when they were camped out in Thailand in Uban Province, and we visited that area where their camp was, um, you can see the the Viet Tan. Flag flying there, and our understanding is that, that, uh, Wang Kouming founded the group there, the party there, and that, that basically its origins traced directly to him and to that camp, that it would become the political arm
0: of, uh, while, while the front would be sort of the guerrilla struggle arm. Right, and my piece on the, uh, guerrillas and the, guerrillas and the mist, uh, that the OC. Weekly titled it that way. Uh, I showed, uh, I argued that the, the propaganda in the Vietnamese language material, they show more kind of radical, kind of, uh, soldiers type, militia type pictures. And then in the other one, they show, in the English language, they showed people dressed in suits trying to lobby, uh, for political reform. So there was a two-faced kind of uh, imagery they presented to the, to the public. Um, do you, did you, do you know why they hid the truth about, um, Mr. Min's death, uh, for so many years? Why did they not admit that he had died? I mean, I mean, the first thing I want to say
1: about that, uh, that I think is important to note is people were hurt, but because they reported the fact that he was, he was dead. Um uh, uh Wen Tu A, who, who, um, ran the Viet, the, the Viet, uh, press newspaper, His newspaper reported that Wang Comin was killed and then he started getting seriously, seriously harassed and threatened. And I think, I think there were actually very likely plans to kill him. Uh, Duan Van Twy also criticized the front for covering up the fact that, that Wang Comin had been killed. And shortly after that, he was shot in the face. Um, So I I think it's important to note that the group put out press releases saying, Hey, This is just Viet Cong propaganda (laughs) saying that our leader's dead. And this is just trying to make the communists happy. And so in that context, people got hurt. You know, people were physically threatened. They were attacked and they were hurt. Um, Everyone tells us that the group did not tell the public about the death of its leader because he was very popular. He was charismatic. He was a um, man of action. He was well-liked. And frankly, the other leaders of the group, including his brother, were not nearly as well liked as he was. And so they felt like um, the struggle continues. We're going to continue raising funds. We want to continue our efforts to take back Vietnam. And if we tell people that uh, our leader is dead, they're not going to be as supportive of, of us. And they did, in fact, try to mount another invasion after he was uh,
0: killed. But I saw pictures of him. Uh, was he killed in battle? I mean, I saw pictures of him in the years they denied he was dead. And was he killed in battle, or how did he die? I can't remember. Uh, the there's different stories about it. The
1: one that you seem to hear the most, and I've read this in um, reports from the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, and then I've also heard it from members of the the front, is that he was surrounded by um, hostile forces. And killed himself by suicide with a, a gunshot to the head in in
0: Thailand or in Laos in Laos in Laos oh, okay. yeah in
1: their in their um, basically their second invasion attempt in 1987.
0: Oh, okay. Um, do you so how how are you how is your your group uh, ProPublica and um, Frontline reacting to this petition drive that's online to try to investigate your your work? Well, you know. Um,
1: there's also a petition online to right. uh, reopen the the investigation. Yeah, I signed the, it. I signed into, it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we we have um, in response to the criticism, demand for a retraction, we have uh, generated a point by point response to that, which we've posted on the ProPublica website and on the Frontline website, and we've uh, generated sort of responses for the PBS ombudsman about. Uh, how solid our reporting is, why we made the choices we did. Um, you know, there's interesting things that, that the Viet Tan group has, has raised. You know, they say there's a gentleman named, uh, Wen Deng Kwa in the film and he denies that canine exists. Well, the yeah. thing is we actually, he does deny in the film that canine exists, but actually we continue to talk to him on camera and he goes on to say, I, and I, I told him, I said, this is who I heard ran the canine. And he said, no, you're wrong. Canine K- existed and it was run by this person. And he says this on camera. Um, The only reason we didn't use that scene is because we couldn't totally corroborate that the guy that he identified as the head of canine was in fact that person. Hmm. But in the end, he did not deny the existence of this, this secret unit. In fact, he confirms it and says, this is the guy who ran it. Um, you know, a lot of the, the criticisms, uh, you know, I, I understand, look, I, I don't want people to feel that the Vietnamese community is being besmirched and um, being dissed at all. What I want them to feel is that there are people that really love this community, that spend a lot of time there, that um, feel a great collegiality. Towards the people who were killed, who were writers and journalists, people who wanted to express themselves, and we feel a great um, sadness that they were killed in in a country that holds itself up as a, a bastion of free expression, and that the government was never never able to send a message that would say, "Hey, everyone in this country gets to say what they want, whether it's popular or not."
0: You know. Why did the FBI case? Uh fizzle out, I guess.
1: You know, I think it's, I think there were some people on the case that really, really cared deeply mm. about the investigation and were very earnestly and aggressively pursued it. I don't think even when it became a priority for the Bureau, that it was a very high priority for the Bureau. And I don't think that that sense of um, devotion to the case was universally shared within the Bureau. Um, But beyond that, to do a case like this, you have to get to the people who pulled the trigger, who wrote the letters, who gave the orders, and you have to have some sort of leverage with them to get them to talk and to get them to implicate themselves or to implicate others. And that was a thing that the Bureau had a great deal of trouble doing is getting all the way to the top, to the the people who could really, um, who really knew exactly what happened and who had given the orders and who had pulled the trigger. Um, and because they weren't able to penetrate the group like that,
0: they weren't in the end able to make a successful case. Do you think uh, it's because of language problems that happened? Or- you know, I think,
1: There's lots and lots of factors, right? Many factors. I think in some cases, you know, I heard about top front leaders being basically grilled very, very heavily by the FBI for, excuse me, for hours at a time. And from what I understand, those leaders basically just shrugged it off. And their sort of sense was, you know, I'm not particularly scared of you, FBI agent. Mm-hmm. I lived through a war. I've lived through a lot of really awful things. And you sitting across a table from me for eight hours is not particularly scary to me. Um, you know, I, I think that there was a certain, uh, a real mental toughness on the part of the people, many of the people who were involved. Um, I also think that there was, the tax case could have given leverage to the Bureau to get people to roll and to, to spill what they knew. But that collapsed. And so then nobody was looking at time and nobody wanted to cut a deal. Um, And I I think the fact that as far as I can tell, there was never a wire put up um, and conversations were not recorded. And I think if there had been that sort of evidence and there had been the translators to Mm. translate hours and hours and hours of Vietnamese language conversations, the story might have been different
0: the um some of the criticism on the scholars group uh of was that this sounded more like a police report uh akin to what is aired on Dateline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they wanted uh frontline to do more a historical piece in terms of uh history of uh how this group started and that kind of stuff and uh how do you respond to that you know i
1: mean part of the situation is that um we had hoped to make a 90-minute film. And so we shot, we spent 52 days filming. Yeah, uh, And in the end, we made a 52-minute film. And so a lot of the things that we would like to have included, the sort of contextual pieces, why people might be deeply, deeply aggrieved um, when they come to the U.S. after 75, and why they might have a deep, deep um, antipathy for the communist government in Vietnam, that sort of context piece is not there the way we would like. Um, the sort of history, uh, the sort of Cold War history that the front existed at a time when the Mujahideen were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, when the Contras were fighting in Nicaragua, when hmm. uh, you know the U.S. was backing uh, a proxy army in Angola. That the Reagan Doctrine, this sort of stuff, is not in there. But at the end, it's we didn't have the the time to do everything we wanted. And to me, the most crucial story to tell was the story of people like uh like Dan Fong's son, uh, mm-hmm. Tu Wen, and what his family has gone through and to try to try to really understand why he got killed, what he was doing as a journalist, and
0: who might might have been the culprits. Yeah, I think you you tried to humanize the story to focus on what happened to the victims too. And so that,
1: that, was a, that was a hope. I mean, the truth is, you know, a, a failing perhaps is that we didn't humanize people that were part of the greater milieu uh, of folks who might've been perpetrators too. And I, while I decry any of these crimes, obviously I spent years investigating them. I think they're awful. Um, I think trying, it would have been good to try to add context to what the sort of, feeling was in the community then, what the sort of angers and tensions were there and the fact that people don't make decisions, don't make these kind of decisions because they're evil people. They make them because they have had a seri- series of life events that leads them to the conclusion that they should go assassinate somebody or terrorize them. But again, that's a hard thing to get into a story like this. Yeah. And again, I'm not apologizing for it, just sort of trying to, that, you know, uh, try to explain that that context a little bit right. better
0: yeah I think it's fine that it was a kind of a, a police story in a way but uh, I was wondering do you find sometimes are you skeptical of what you read in FBI files sometimes because a lot of it is repetitive it could be rumors it could be so how do you distill the the facts <laughs> from what some agent might think uh, happened I guess
1: yeah I mean the thing is that when when you're reading the FBI files and we read tons and tons and tons of FBI files. What you're looking at are agents talking to um, sources who are kept anonymous by the nature of the files, generally, and who are telling them things. And those things contradict one another. Sometimes they corroborate one another. Um, Sometimes they're just completely bogus. Sometimes they're probably quite accurate. Um, So all the way through, I think we're looking at these files and unless we can corroborate specific things, we're thinking, this is speculation. It's not, you know, we can't live on this, but in those files, there were a lot of specific things that, that happened in those that were described in those files that we were able to confirm with living people today. And that gave us a lot of security about what we were saying, you know, and so the more outlandish things that that you see in the files, we discounted those. What we went with were the things that we kept hearing over and over again and that corru- that were uh, lined up with the other evidence that we were able to pull, pull together outside of the file. So, for example, um, there's a gentleman who was one of the early front members who went to Thailand who left the camp in Thailand. He was uh, unhappy there. He didn't think things were going well. And he came back to his home in Hawaii. And he told the FBI, hey, the front is trying to kill me. They didn't want me to leave the camp. Um, The Wang Komin had two people, two members of the group killed in the camp. And he uh, is behind uh, an assassination attempt on one journalist here in the U.S. and killing another one. Well, we interviewed people who had been members of the group who said, yeah, and, and I knew who the person was. Um, I was able to figure out who this person was, um, who said this to the FBI, who said, yeah, all that stuff happened. That, that absolutely happened. Um, what that person told the FBI? Yeah, that's accurate. And so things like that, um, were the kind of things that we would move on out of the FBI files and work into our stories. What was, what was what some outlandish thing that you didn't use? You know there's a story in an FBI file that Wang Min was a big heroin trafficker mm. during the war and I don't think that I have not seen any proof of that mm-hmm. whatsoever and I think that that's one of those stories that gets circulated during right. wartime you know all right, these right. different people got sure. branded as big um uh, my, drug drug traffickers yeah, yeah, and yeah. and by the way he doesn't show up in Alfred McCoy's book on the subject which right. also made me think
0: yeah, heroin and uh, yeah. yeah, Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. so um, because uh, one of the criticisms from the from the Vietnam people is that it's all speculative. You're basing it on speculation and FBI files. You know, part of it is when
1: the same when when there are people in DC, and then there's people in Houston, and then there's people in Orange County, and then there's people in Hawaii, and then there's people in San Jose, and they say I was a member of the group, and there was this secret K nine unit that was out doing the group's dirty work. And that's in the FBI files. It might, when you see it over and over again, over a span of years from different people who'd been in the group, it starts to, you start to think that that's a credible thing. And then when we were interviewing people who had been in the group and they kept saying, you know, people like Batu, Batu is a guy who appears mm-hmm. in our film and our stories who says, yeah, I was recruited to join the group this is the guy who recruited me. He lives in Orange County. um, And this is how it went down. we contacted that person and he wouldn't speak, but we do know that that person was a a big member of the the front at that time. We know he exists. And, you know, he basically said, man, I don't want Baitu to pull me into this mess. Um, You feel like Baitu is probably a pretty credible source. He clearly is a person who... um, was on the more militant side of things during those days and um was close with two of the top people in the front. And if he says, yeah, you know, I was a member of the group. My belief is that we killed people, we killed journalists. And, you know, I was recruited to join the group's death squad. To me, that's a pretty um useful thing. But I will tell you that we interviewed people who gave us much on, you know, anonymously who gave us much more direct confirmation than that. At one point I met with someone who, whom I had been told was a canine uh, leader. And I took a list of the dead journalists to this person. And I said, "Um, tell me if you kill if the group killed these people. And he looked at the first name and the first name was Lum. And he said, yes, we killed that person. Looked at the second name, the second name, uh, was Dam Fong. And he said, yes, we killed that person. He looked at the next name and he said, it's possible. Looked at the next name and he said, I don't know. And I said, "Um, okay. And he said, I'm not going to tell you anything unless I know for sure we killed these people. And I'm telling you, absolutely. We killed these two first people. The later people I know less about because I left the group and I wasn't directly involved. But the first Two people on this, your list,
0: yes, the front killed these people. That's in the film.
1: Yeah, right. uh, yeah, yeah, it just, I just talk, talk about it in voiceover in the film.
0: Alright, alright. Right. And um, so uh, were you surprised you didn't get more people to come talk to you, uh, given that it's been so many decades since it, uh, what happened, when it happened, uh, were you, or, or do you think that there's still this uh, intimidation going on that people are afraid to speak out?
1: Well, you know, we talked to about 20 former members of the front, and some of them were very, very candid. And some of them were uh, remarkably not forthcoming. Um, But, you know, it was a trip to me because there were people that I met um, who would talk about getting threatened by the front 80s and early 90s. And I'd say I'd love to Formally interview you, you know, could you talk to me? You remember the media, you got threatened. Would you talk about it? And they would say, no, I don't want to make that public. I'm still scared.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I think the situation is less scary now, but it having lived through that period and since I covered our uh, little Saigon for the weekly, uh, you know, I, I got my share of this. And I'm, I'm not Vietnamese, so <laughs> although that didn't prevent uh, Cooperman from suffering his fate. So um yeah. So anyway, I want to thank you very much for a long interview and uh uh good luck. Hey, thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. And we'll talk more about Cooperman. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Thanks. thank you. Thank you. bye. Thanks.